So that's what I'm saying. The text is like an object. It's gonna change perspective based on where you're standing. I don't know. Hello? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I missed you, baby sweet. It was a day, hmm? It was a day. Please tell me you're seeing this too. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Hello, Michael. Hey, Taylor. Been hey, a few years. It's been a minute. It's a small minute. A small minute. We are back after an extended hiatus uh, for special occasion because we just recently passed a certain milestone here at Drink in the Movies. We just crossed the five-year anniversary mark of the release of our very first podcast back in 2018. Half a decade. Half a decade. It's we, a, we are now able to measure half a decade. It's a good thing we are not on video. Otherwise, people could see how we've aged. I, I'm very happy that we're glowing up, not down. Oh, for sure. We will find out if recording a podcast is more like riding a bike or if it's more of a use it or lose it kind of skill. Well, if it's a use it or lose it, we've already lost it. So we might as well just keep pedaling. We'll just keep trying. We can be in the blackberry bush upside down, just pedaling our legs for fun. We'll, we'll fail together yes. at the least. Um, so today we're going to talk about, um, some murder and some sickness. Uh, we're going to do some first impressions on The Killer, the new David Fincher film, as well as Killers of the Flower Moon, the new Martin Scorsese film. And then we'll get on to Targets from Peter Bogdanovich, followed by Sick of Myself from Christopher Borgley. I hope I did not crucify that last name. Sounds right to me. I think we're doing... The killer first, for mm-hmm. first impressions. We'll get started with the killer. Stick to your plan. Never yield an advantage. Stick to the plan. Fight only the battle you're paid to fight. Ask yourself, what's in it for me? Stick to the plan. Empathy, weakness, vulnerability. This is what it takes if you want to succeed. Simple. All right, Michael, that was the trailer for David Fincher's The Killer. What do you think? I am hopeful that this will be a return to form for David Fincher after Mank, which I was not terribly a fan of. Um, I think we have reason to be uh, hopeful for this one. What do you think? I'm with you. I did not like Mank either. Um, I'd love to revisit it outside of that push that was very annoying marketing wise and all the buzz and everything and just revisit why I don't like it because I think that it is stylistically interesting Mm. um, for the reasons which I vehemently was abrased by it. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very much looking forward to this. I was thinking this is kind of what people told me the accountant was, but I was very disappointed Mm. by that Ben Affleck film. Um, So I like the look of it. I also like the idea of Michael Fassbender getting back on track. Um, He is one of the most exciting performers of this generation, and he's kind of been lost in the middle of fledgling and middling films. Um, Things like The Snowman come to mind, Mm. you know, more recently. The infamously Um, bad Snowman, right? Yes, yes. Uh, That one just burns a little bit in my heart because of a lengthy drive that I took to go see it um, at an inconvenient time. Say more. Where did you drive from and to? I was in Oregon, and in order to go to, you know, we live in Seattle. I was Mm -hmm. in Oregon visiting family, and in order to go see the film, I needed to journey about 50 minutes, Mm -hmm. borrowing my cousin's car that I'm not familiar at driving. Um, And so it was just a pain. Getting back, there was traffic on I-5, we know what that's like. Oh, yeah. Um, so it just, it was really not worth it. And then sitting in traffic, ruminating on how bad it was, did not help. Yeah, I can imagine. I never saw The Snowman, but I do understand that it is, like, incredibly bad. Yes. Uh, so that's a... And you're slightly aware of how much I like my detective stories. So yeah, when they're yeah. bad, they're really bad. Yeah. A uh, good choice of a first impression for... I understand that this movie is about 
Michael Fassbender serial killer like actually developing some empathy over mm-hmm. the course of this movie like I think that's the premise I haven't even read like the plot description I think I've just kind of passed that in maybe some of the first um, responses to it that's what um, it sounded like when he was narrating like just stick to the plan just stick to the plan or whoever was narrating that I guess yeah, I don't know whose voice yeah. it was yeah a fitting choice with uh, targets which we'll talk about later yes mm-hmm. our our heroic main figure in targets mm-hmm. um, well without further ado let's get to Killers of the Flower Moon there's so many deaths we've lost count this just bad luck seems more like an epidemic than bad luck to me Osage is dying by the enemy. Do not let them die alone. Evil surrounds my heart. All right, that was the trailer for Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. What you make of this one? It made my face stretch in such a manner that I donned a smile immediately. This looks a lot like those pictures that they used to make in old Hollywood, those big spectacles. Um, I was thinking a little bit of Babylon, um, the recent Damien Chazelle film, which is also a period piece, a little bit bombastic as the beginning of the trailer was, but very thoroughly designed. I felt as if the film was very thoroughly designed from start to finish, if albeit very unrealistic um, in every other manner besides the fact that, you know, we just would not see DiCaprio dating someone over 25. Mm, yeah, yeah. That's the most far-fetched thing about it, I suppose. Yeah, uh, I was uh, just thinking back to our post on the Drinking the Movies website of our most anticipated movies of the year. This had to have been on at least like three or four of our team's mm-hmm. lists. This was a popular choice. Remains... Highly anticipated for me, for sure. No reason to doubt, you know, Martin Scorsese at this point. Um, uh, We have some heavy hitters here, obviously. DiCaprio, Robert De Niro. Particularly excited to see Jesse Plemons in this, though. Um, I feel like everybody is familiar with Jesse Plemons. For me, he still remains, like, underrated. Especially in how he can tackle both um, comedy and these more heavy-hitting dramatic roles. Um, he's kind of filling like a Philip Seymour Hoffman gap for me in a way. Even something about his look kind of reminds me of. Absolutely. Yeah. He would have been the perfect follow-up to Philip. Yeah. And, and I could just picture Philip Seymour Hoffman in this kind of role. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty amped. At, at one point in the trailer, I said, is that Brendan Fraser? And you said, yes. Um, I don't know what to do with that other than lots more joy for me. Um, big fan of his. I think that he's a perfect talking head, sort of a commanding presence mm-hmm. for a Scorsese picture like this that's going to need a lot of talking heads for what appears to be a fair amount of political logistics going on in the midst of what is a fair amount of murder. And mm-hmm. the murder is what excited me. Um, it, it looked um, perhaps atmospherically like he was going back to a little bit of that Cape Fear tone that we Mm. saw with him where he was able to give us dread in the midst of a hunt. And if that Mm. happens multiple times in this film, um, I'll be very enthused. Yeah, makes sense. Good stuff to look forward to. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Peter Bogdanovich's Targets. We thank you for the food we're about to receive in the Lord's name. Amen. Amen. A typical American family at dinner. Mom and Dad, their beautiful daughter-in-law, and their only son, Joe, a homicidal maniac. All right, Michael, this film, I believe, came out in 1968. It is a Roger Corman production. If memory serves me well, this is a directorial debut that he was offered the opportunity to make due to a few extra days that they had with Boris Karloff due to some other project. That's my understanding as well. I think there's kind of a famous backstory to this movie, which is exactly that. Like, my understanding is that it's, like, Boris Karloff owed Roger Corman a couple days of shooting and said to Bogdanovich, um, use Karloff for the two days he owes me. 
use 20 to 30 minutes of this film that Karloff has already shot called The Terror and then shoot 40 minutes yourself and we'll make a movie. And that was Bogdanovich's task, um, which is certainly a uh, Frankenstein way to make a movie of, you know, stitching a bunch of parts together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll be curious to hear how that uh, worked for you, because it does feel stitched together. Like you can tell, like, you know, that these are um, different movies, obviously, being um, sewn together. It, it is. Um, so if the film comes across pulpy and propulsive and... You know, what are we? So 68 to 98's 30 years to 2018's 50. So we're over 50 years from this film's release, right? And it still feels fresh and experimental to me. Mm. And um, so my reaction to how do I feel about it being Frankenstein? I feel like those constraints allowed him to be um, as experimental as he, mm. uh, as the, like those boundary conditions made him perhaps better. And gave him something to go off of that still feels fresh to this day. And I bet without those constraints, he wouldn't have made something that feels quite this exciting to watch still, where because of those constraints, you almost don't know what's going to happen, even though you know very much what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely still striking for its kind of kind of radically like inventive form for the sake of uh, frugality. But in, but in content, too, like, it's kind of eerily resonant to me that this was, if I understand it right, inspired by the, like, Charles Whitman shooting um, of at a UT Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, but this movie sets its shooting at a movie theater, at a drive-in, um, which uh, just kind of foretells something to me, like the Aurora shooting, um, which was, like, 2010 2011 2012 something like that mm-hmm. um so still kind of eerily relevant um in, in its in its content too yes i think that there's something that is timeless about murder especially mm. murder in contemporary settings right because it's the first time that we're thinking about how easy are the fish in a barrel in this particular barrel mm. um but underneath it it's really the wildness of the killer just being a boyish boy that goes in and is asking if he can charge things to his father's account while he's taking a big old bite of a Babe Ruth bar and waiting to go pop open uh, the top of a soda pop. Like there's, there's a very um, boyish undercurrent to this killer that I think it comes from maybe Bogdanovich's own, like Americana um, mm-hmm. styling, right? We talked about the last picture show, and I think that there is um, a crossover of theme and characterization of the American youth here. Yeah, yeah, definitely a movie that seems to be just taking the pulse of America at this moment of in moment in time, and the pulse of cinema too, American cinema, because it does definitely has this kind of elegiac quality for old Hollywood, obviously with Boris Karloff basically playing himself mm-hmm. and sort of um um grieving the the death of the kinds of movies he used to make um yeah um but yeah like on the note of the structure you, you since we're basically watching like two movies up until the point at which two separate plot lines converge you want to pick one of the plot threads and describe that and i'll take the other uh pick one of the plot threads and describe that sure mm-hmm. Um, so I believe, I may be wrong, that the first plot thread that we're introduced to is the Boris Karloff, uh, plot thread, um, which opens up with him playing a character in the film that you mentioned that, uh, Corman had instructed him to pull from, which is our introduction, and then he's watching himself in the theater. At that point, we're introduced to his assistant, who is the girlfriend of Peter Bogdanovich's character. And Bogdanovich is either an aspiring filmmaker or a fledgling one. And he has a screenplay that he's trying to get Karloff to read. And Karloff wants to leave um, the city uh, on a multitude of trains and boats to, I believe, go to England. Um, And 
what ensues is a drunken night that is performed terribly by Bogdanovich, but is very fun and charming in the sense that it's its inception is literally just so that he gets to have a scene in which he and Boris share the same bed. Mm-hmm. And there's something about getting in bed with Boris Karloff in your first movie that I do like that's very uh, charming and cute to me in a way that though it is outside of the film completely affects the way that I take the film. Yeah, it's kind of shocking like how wide the tone of this movie can range. Like that is very charming and it's and it's light um which is just night and day different from the other half of the movie um yeah and on the other side of this movie um we follow um a young man played by tim o'kelly character's name is bobby thompson who just as you described is this kind of like picture perfect all-american young man uh lives with his uh mother and father and his wife or fiance, I can't remember if they've actually married or not, but at bare minimum, his fiance, um, who we see amassing guns um, and seemingly fantasizing about uh, killing people um, mm-hmm. up until the point at which we see that very much happen um, in the uh, like back third of the movie. Um, but yeah, the movie's like cross-cutting between these two plot threads. Which have pretty different tones. Mm-hmm. Was it was it jarring for you, or do you think these are like working well together? No, I think I I think Bogdanovich deserves credit, especially for being as young as he was when he created the the introduction sequence. Because if I remember correctly, basically everything happens to the point where uh, Karloff says no to Bogdanovich and Bogdanovich is trying to convince him and like following his girlfriend who's the assistant of Karloff into the car in the street and then we cut to the uh Tim O'Kelly the boy arriving to the gun store and shopping and everything and then picking up a gun and looking through his scope out the window at a car in the street which is the car that Karloff is getting into and so from the start these are happening in the same quote-unquote world even Mm -hmm. though it's very clear that they're not like if you look at the insert shot of what he's looking at through the scope it's clearly not the correct individuals but it it structures it in such a way that you're prepared for the eventuality of the two seeing each other again at the end Mm -hmm. um and so it was it, it wasn't too uh jarring or abrupt to me i will say that the stylisms the further it got on like after that drunken night and the humor that they'd built up it stands in stark contrast to the first kill. Mm. Yeah. Right. They're very jarringly different, but it makes it stick in my mind more. So I don't think mm. that that's like a poor choice. I, I think it's an artistic flourish that you can interpret either way and be right. It's just, I think that I did like it because it's sticky. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You, yeah. You say it, it'll stick in your mind. I, th- I think that's absolutely true. They really do feel like two different movies, but that just makes them like that much more vivid in a way. Because they're they're so different at times, um, but yeah, like you know, we uh, I think we've seen plenty of movies where you have multiple plot threads that like eventually converge. But to me, mm-hmm. it was kind of interesting how in this movie you have one thread that's really like commenting on the other thread because we have Karloff's character Orlock talking about things like um, what scares people today and how the kinds of movies he uh used to make aren't aren't scary in light of the kinds of uh random shootings that that can occur in the modern world and he like even shows a uh newspaper at one point about Mm a um, random shooting um so it's literally addressing the thing that's happening on the other side of this movie um which is just kind of interesting um uh a kind of interesting dialogue between the two halves of the movie um yeah i think so um I think that at this point we can probably get to that first kill. Mm-hmm. Um, if I remember correctly, he is writing a note at a desk that basically Sir uh, explains that he's going to kill everyone in the house and then he's going to go kill a lot more people before he gets killed or is stopped. Maybe he uses stopped rather than killed. So he's a little bit idealistic. Mm-hmm. Um which I, I think is of note that our killer is an idealistic 
individual and on the other side we have two disillusioned individuals mm. one bogdanovich still wants to make something even though he's um disillusioned the other doesn't mm. but um is eventually able to be convinced because of his nature mm. um all, all of which is very interesting but the first kill is his wife or fiance as you stated coming home and it's a very like explosive shot it's done in close-up where she's kind of exploded backwards from the point of a pistol shot and her back slides down the wall leading uh leaving a nice big trail of blood and then he goes on to kill his mother and the grocery boy mm-hmm. um in a quite frenetic piece of handheld cinematography from what i can recall uh what did you think about the sequence oh i think it's a it remains quite a shocking sequence it's partly the editing uh especially that first shot when the first murder when he murders his wife um yeah it's 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 they're close-ups just like you said but it's like cutting between like his face then the gun up close then her as she's approaching um and it it does feel almost vaguely experimental in how that unfolds um and it's partly the aftermath that we just kind of sit there in these rooms with him after it happens and he puts um his wife like into bed um Mm -hmm. after she's after she's been killed um the sound design was kind of striking to me here like you still hear the like the birds chirping outside um you hear the ice cream truck which is almost like a little too on the nose that like all is well outside of this house but um it's so quiet and you're just with this blank slate of a man blank slate of a murderer that's yeah pretty striking yeah um when he at that point in the film, I knew that he was going to kill, obviously, but I didn't think that he would kill the person closest to him first. Mm. And so when it happened, I was like, okay, like everything is is off. Um, and then he goes on that killing spree, hops in the car after cleaning everything up meticulously, and he goes to the Chevron mm. uh, depot, I guess is what you would call it, like an oil depot. And he gets on top of these um, silos that... I assume are holding oil, but I don't actually know what they they may or may not have had in them. And he begins taking pot shots at people on the highway. Um, I don't know about you because you don't play as many video games as I mm. do, but this hit very close to home. This is something that mm. I was doing when I was in you know the sixth grade playing Grand Theft Auto. You know, get your sniper rifle out, go take some pot shots at people on the interstate for fun. But it, it's a little bit different when you're watching a film and it's a real person. It sure does, but like it, it, it appears so recreational for him, um, because he's bringing food with him. Like it's he has like a sandwich mm-hmm. before he kind of gets gets going with the shooting. Um, again, the sound design kind of stood out to me there because he's there by himself. He's not talking, but um, the the traffic, kind of like the the white noise of the plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and the like, the screeching of the tires, the windows going out as he shoots, um, all pretty, um, pretty effective stuff. Yeah, yeah. and it, they create a, or Bogdanovich rather is able to create a good atmosphere of tension because he has to sneak on top of this um, silo or tank or whatever it's actually supposed to be called because there's a worker that is in uh, like a shed station, and as he begins shooting that man thinks that he hears something and he starts slowly creeping out the door and we're getting cuts Mm. to him thinking he hears something. Then it builds this trepidation up and you think that he's going to get caught and confronted. And what ultimately happens is our first shotgun blast Mm. um, that throws him over and a very, very awful silhouette of a, of a doll falling with clearly um, false legs because mm-hmm. the legs are trailing up and yeah against like a tank down. right yeah yeah, yeah 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 exactly um so i i really enjoyed that sequence i thought it it showed the boyishness that we talked about to begin with um the most out of all of these killing sequences that was really the moment and it i think is also the other half of that um scene that was him looking down the site at his father Mm. Um, earlier on the gun range in the film which we had glossed over um and from here we end up going to the movie theater why don't you walk us there 
Yeah, so our, our two plot threads converge at a drive-in where uh, Karloff's Byron Orlock is scheduled to make like a, an appearance because the drive-in's playing uh, his movie called The Terror. This is a appearance he doesn't really want to do, but he's kind of talked into doing by like his producer or Bogdanovich's character, the director. So he kind of begrudgingly decides to, to go through with it, which just so happens to be where Michael O'Kelly's serial killer winds up after being um, pursued by the police and he ends up um, stationing himself behind the screen at the drive-in and finds himself a hole or carves himself a hole through which he can snipe the moviegoers at the drive-in. And he arrives a little before... um, Karloff's character does, and so there is a fair bit of of panic and chaos um, leading up to um, Karloff's arrival. Yes, um, wonderfully put. I will say that there is a very engrossing police chase sequence that happens between the uh, the tankers and, or the silos and arriving at the movie theater, um, and the way that Karloff ultimately is talked into going is because the consequences of being so hungover are that he feels guilty or whatever and so he goes with Bogdanovich which means that he'll make the appearance he just basically needed to be talked into it and worshipped a little bit yeah um, from what I could tell at least or surmise um the sequence at the movie theater itself I think thought was actually a little bit less stylistically interesting than some of the bolder choices that he made earlier in the film. I think there are moments of imagery that are um, interesting, like when he is in the middle of that hole behind Mm -hmm. the screen, like the way that that's composed is interesting. Um, Even the finale that kind of um, recalls M to me, maybe, Mm. where um, he is shriveled up like a Mm. a pathetic weakling um, and being looked at by Boris Karloff. I I did find that image interesting, but I didn't find any of it as striking or as engrossing as the, I think, main earlier sequences were, whether the slapstick uh, drunkenness or the explosive first sequence or even the second sequence um, with the pot shots at the highway. Mm. yeah i could see that like there's uh i think yeah i think i would agree that like when he is behind the uh screen and he hasn't it hasn't really dawned on the crowd as a whole yet that there is a situation at hand Mm -hmm. that's that's pretty compelling you're kind of just in and out of like individual cars and that's pretty terrifying yeah it's kind of a horror film in that moment yeah they're trying to talk to each other and saying there's there's a sniper get down and people don't really even like understand what's going on the panic erupts and then it's almost kind of like dead time like it's just it's almost like a little too chaotic i don't like it's a little less effective but you're kind of just waiting for Karloff to show up yes um, for a couple a couple minutes or at least it feels like a couple minutes um but i do like the actual confrontation with Karloff and this shooter which is just just struck me as so strange like there's this back and forth that the serial killer does as he's like looking at the screen and looking at Karloff in person, it is kind of terrified by both, mm-hmm. um, which I guess I kind of read as almost like this wish fulfillment in a way. Like after Karloff has been so disappointed by how unscary he is in this day and age, he somehow still manages to catch this guy off guard, both through his work and in real life. Um, and, you know, it's like the the old still manages to pack a punch to the new in this minor situation by basically bitch slapping him to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That that pathetic uh, whimpering image of Tim O'Kelly on the ground. I, I like it a lot, but I don't know that Bogdanovich actually delivers the idea of having the two Karloff sandwich him. Mm. Like, I, I think that there's, there's a, an interesting dynamic there there's an interesting duality there it is interesting but like ultimately what the film builds to doesn't really make a clear statement with that right Mm. and everything before not everything but a large amount of the moments before that even when they're poorly conceived in certain ways 
does feel dynamically sticky. And this last sequence, other than its image of me thinking of M, really is kind of a whimper to go out with, which is an interesting point about the boy. But him looking at the screen and then looking back at Karloff, like that is giving him some interiority that we haven't really seen displayed before, right? Basically, all the interiority we've seen is like, how do I get from A to B and keep killing? And then all of a sudden, he's supposed to have this interiority where he's interrogating thoughtfulness. And that's mm. just not the character that I had mapped onto, at least. So mm. it, it seems a little bit like a stylistic shift in the character's interiority. Yeah, up until that point, the serial killer's half of the movie is almost just like a procedural. Like, you see him in the lead-up to a shooting, then you see him in the aftermath of the shooting, you see him buying weapons. Like, it's kind of, it's about, like, process. And then it gets kind of, like, symbolic in that last stretch with him literally shooting through a movie screen. Like, it's kind of a loaded image. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, this kind of, like, sudden confusion between his reality and uh, the fiction on the screen is, um, it's, it's a shift, for sure. Yeah. So it works for you a little bit more than me, it sounds like. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah. so. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, well, the film really pretty much ends there. I don't think that we get uh, anything more final on what happens to either of our central characters. So, mm. big takeaways. Did you like the film? Did you dislike the film? Why? Yeah, uh, I, I I did enjoy this and find it pretty interesting um, o- overall. Um, uh, I yeah for for i think for for the reasons we've already kind of hit on like i just think it remains i think it uh remains quite disquieting in an impressive way um nice word that's a good word for this movie yeah yeah and i think it is a a difficult feat to pull off a movie with such disparate tones side by side with each other um and the conversation between these these movies this movie's different parts are pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I think that I like its fervent experimentalism and its earlier mm. two thirds. And as that end comes, it, it almost feels like a different movie belongs there that, that really recaps what we were introduced to. Um, but I'm very happy to have watched it. I like it. It's not my favorite Bogdanovich, mm. but it still feels fresh and it emanates something that feels thematic and timely to now. And I think that that speaks more highly than any other platitudes that I could say about its quality, that it's still relevant. Yeah. Um, on a different episode, we talked about the last picture show. That's one of my all time favorite movies. You don't get that movie without this one. Uh, this is the one that kind of put him on the map and set him up for that one. Uh, So precisely. And you made me a believer. I, I love that, that film quite a bit. Um, well, without further ado, let's get to Christopher Borgley's Sick of Myself. All right, Michael, this is the film that has the worst central character slash antagonist protagonist. Um, Our serial killer from Targets is a hero compared to this main character. How do you uh, feel, think, talk about Sick of Myself? Well, we can describe this lead character who is quite unpleasant, as you say. Um, Our lead character in this movie is Signa. Played by Christine Kuja Thorpe. This is a Norwegian movie, as those names uh, might suggest. Um, this is a movie about Signa's um, desperate attempts for attention. She's a young woman who works as like a barista. She's like twenty or late twenties, early thirties, maybe. She's married to a artist who is having a bit of a breakthrough um, career-wise, and as his um career is kind of taking off she finds herself be a bit jealous of the attention and starts going to desperate lengths to uh attract this uh, the spotlight um to the point that she literally makes herself sick in order to um attract attention 
Um, I I find her relatable only to a tiny degree. I'll maybe give her that much. Um, it sounds like you're not even there with her. Oh, where she's coming from. Mm. Very relatable. What she does, mm. abhorrent and disgusting. There you go. At a moral and ethical level. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yes. Um, I mean, to be clear, I like this movie on retrospect. While I'm watching it, it's kind of like watching a assembly of only the most cringe-inducing moments of The Office mm. that make you want to walk away from the television or just skip forward until it gets to a different scene because it's so uncomfortable mm. watching whatever social engagement or interaction is occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I definitely knew what I was in for in, I think, the first, like, five minutes. She says, I'm not a narcissist. This is why. Mm-hmm. And I go, okay, I know what I'm in for. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It, it, it's interesting in retrospect that it even, like, has the guts to, like, say that. Um, cause the whole movie is like laser focused on one aspect of her personality, which is her narcissism. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point that like, I could see someone just complaining that this is like too one note. Um, this is not a well-rounded character study in my opinion. It is like single-mindedly interested in her narcissism. And I think that works for the sake of comedy. Yes. And I think it works based on the character that we're presented with. There's no other interiority besides the selfishness and the narcissism, right? Yeah, so like, that's what, it. what other part of the character do you need to get to know? The part that eats food? Like, yeah, exactly. We, we see her eat some food and she's narcissistic socially when she does so. Or she's faking an allergy to get attention. Um, it's a very uh, intriguing film. And it's done in a manner that I didn't expect. It is reminiscent, as a lot of people have said, of The Worst Person in the World, or Mm. whatever the full title of that is. Maybe I Mm. slightly um, misspoke. But the relationship that she has with someone who is also narcissistic adds a layer of complexity that keeps you ruminating on like is this a competition between the two or Mm. is is this even like a relationship where the two people even like each other or are they just together to compete for attention because both of them are of that type of narcissism like there there's a layer to the foundation of the character and the plot structure that keeps everything along the way engaging Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the relationship because it is a weird relationship in that they seem to kind of hate each other on some level. It's one of the weirder romantic relationships I've seen in a a movie, new movie recently, where there's like no evidence that they seem to even enjoy like each other's company all that much. But they give each other like a reason to like they they're together solely for the purpose of one upping each other, um, which is very, very funny. and there are opportunities where they could be kind of calling each other out on their bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a really funny scene where they're at a dinner together for the boyfriend's c- career. And uh, she fakes a peanut allergy just to attract a bunch of attention. He could have put you know a stop to that immediately. But he kind of just lets it happen, um, which I think is, 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 is very funny. It is. And then it matures... To the point where everyone believes that she has the allergy. Everyone believes that she's passed out. And then he says, I'll just continue giving my speech, which uh, the individual that had given him the opportunity or whatever, like, looks at him like he's a monster. Mm-hmm. And so the that interplay of, like, friendly competition where, like, she set it up, he's not going to take it away from her. Mm. But he's not going to entertain it either. Yeah, yeah. It's a very weird dynamic. It's a very weird relationship. Um, and nobody in this movie is very likable. Like, I, I think it's kind of funny how it is laser-focused on her narcissism. But we also get these side characters who um, are always reluctant to um, accept blame in any, in any way. Like, in that peanut allergy scene, the waiter is insistent on everyone knowing that he put the plates in the correct place and that she did not get peanut because of an accident on his part. Um, the, the idea that everyone is 
first and foremost concerned with defending and protecting themselves and then interested in making sure another person's okay is pretty funny. Yeah, the, another moment that comes to mind is uh, he is doing something socially. It could even be that same thing, but but I think it is, in fact, that same sequence where the woman sitting next to her asks, is she an artist too? Mm. And they have this interplay. And then at the very end, she says, oh, I just thought you might be an artist because of all the paint stains on your clothing. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, just like all of these people also suck. And oh, it's, yeah. it's underlying her is this need and want to be seen. Totally. These people that are also awful. But what length she's willing to go to is kind of the reason that she's more awful. And on retrospect, maybe she's not more awful. But gosh, when you're watching the movie, she is really a piece of work. Yeah, yeah. You took the words out of my mouth. Like I was thinking of it as rooted in a fear of being invisible. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, that's relatable. It's just it's obviously the extremity of her um, efforts to uh, be seen that is, you know, extremely off-putting. Um, yeah, you mentioned, uh, the worst person in the world. I was thinking a little bit of the satire from, like, Ruben Osland, um, as another, like, kind of Scandinavian satirist. Um, I I had thought of him, too, and I thought, it's amazing that this movie's good and his movies are bad. I know. (laughs) I think it's a real difference between, like, the broad strokes of his satire versus, like, the laser focus of this one. This is really specific mm-hmm. in its uh, attention to its character and one aspect of her. Um, yeah, it's like this is a character study in his or theme studies, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, the film opens with them having dinner and her making the assertion that everyone's looking at her and him saying, no one's looking at you. And I think that that really is the entire film. And you don't, it's not hitting you over the head with it. It's just that is truly, on retrospect, the entirety of the film. Mm -hmm. She thinks everyone's looking at her. Then she thinks no one's looking at her. And then it's, how do I get everyone to look at me? And once they do, she realizes that she doesn't actually want it. Mm -hmm. Right? That's like... And I I think that the way that it's presented doesn't um, befuddle the movie. It doesn't foul it up. It doesn't... um, put its message over its form in any way it just presents it as a piece of character dialogue and then on retrospect you get to interrogate it you're not really thinking about it the whole time yeah yeah and just to to lay out her boldest attempt to attract attention the main like thrust of this movie is her finding some drug like from Dexadril Russia, or... Lexadril, yeah, something like that. I I, I want to say it's like from Russia that has yep. been reported to cause this terrible skin disease, and she buys it from her drug dealer, and that, um, sure enough, does cause this horrible reaction of her skin that just looks awful. Like I think it looks hilariously awful. Like it mm-hmm. works. It's very effective. And I think that is like the funniest step for me is when it gets a little out of control and she loses. Um, her grasp on what what she's doing to herself. Um, she event- eventually gets this modeling job where, like, mid-modeling shoot, she started bleeding from the head. Uh, and she looks so bad, and it's 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 great. It's super funny. It, it really is. Um, I, I think it's worth pointing out that in between those two events, um, in kind of the first quarter of the film, really the inciting incident, if you will, is she's working at, uh, as a barista at the coffee shop, and a woman is attacked by, I believe, a pit bull. And it bites her throat. And our main character, Cigna, uh, holds a hand towel to her throat to help keep her alive until paramedics arrive. And then she's walking home covered in blood. And she's getting all these looks and all this attention. And something clicks in her where it's like, this is an opportunity to win. And then she gets home and her uh, boyfriend is ignoring her talking about ordering some sort of a duck dish, I Mm, believe mm -hmm. from the local Chinese restaurant and that she doesn't want any. Um, And he's ignoring her. He's not turning around from his laptop. And then eventually he walks into a room that she's walked to and she's still covered in blood. And the way that he reacts, I think is really the inception of like, Mm. I'm going to 
do something to get people medically concerned about me because Mm. this is awesome because she was getting all this attention and everyone was looking at her people were asking her on her walk home is she all right um does she need help is she okay and that leads to her finding this drug and the very just ridiculous thing of like going over there and the conversation they have about him sending her a photo that was meant to be sent to a different girl in his phone in which he had tried to suck his own dick while Mm. taking a photo is just absolute like that is the narcissism that the film is built on and this is perhaps the most likable character that the film has yeah yeah is probably by far Yeah. yeah and uh at the very end he asks whether or not she'd be willing to have coffee with him and his mom because his mom's worried that he doesn't talk or see anyone. And it's just like the vulnerability of this character is so sweet, even though he's clearly a douchebag in comparison to everyone else in the film that like you end up thinking that the drug dealer is the hero. Yeah. Yeah. He's the only one you actually do pity uh, in a genuine way. Yeah. Yeah, and he's got you know, he's made some mistakes and it, but at least he's telling the truth to people's mm. faces. Mm. Whereas like none of the other characters are. Yeah, very much so. Um Yeah, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but he's far and away the most likable character of the bunch. Um uh I was going to say something about the structure. There are like a good handful of moments in this film where we kind of go into Signa's head. And so we glad see you're bringing the, that up. I wanted yeah, to talk about this too. We see either like little fantasies of hers about the um, uh, different ways in which she might receive attention, publicity, even like stardom. Um, like in one moment she dreams that she's on like the news and her dad makes a kind of surprise appearance on a, on a newscast. Um, At her funeral. There's, He's there's denied the, her funeral. The funeral fantasy, yep. And then we get other ones that's like more about like her fears, where she she fears she's going to be found out, uh, and and it will be executed for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting from your reaction that you were positive on most of these like little flights of fancy. So I love that, and I love the way that you're putting that because I have a question for you. Mm. Are you sure that there are flights of fancy without cuts? You're talking about mm. the cuts too, mm. right? Well, remember there's a cut too where she does have coffee after she says the most narcissistic thing to him, which is I can't, I don't have time after she's spent mm. all this time with him. Mm. Are you sure she even said that? Or is that just the person she imagines herself to be? And then she goes and has coffee in that sequence for real with the mom. I can't remember that one specifically, but I will say that this movie does re- like requ- does require some attention because there were instances where I had to stop and say, wait, did that actually just happen or was that a dream? Especially towards the end where mm-hmm. two times we see her, we see a vision of her releasing a book called Sick of Myself. And the second time I thought, oh, wait, did this actually happen? Um, so it, uh, it's a little, it's a little sly in that way. Yeah. Um, so there's a film that came out this year as well called Bo is Afraid, right? Mm. And what is real in that film and what is not real in that film is very debatable, but there's no Mm. argument that like he's feeling the visuals that were meant to, to see. Um, and I think that there's a layer of that to sick of myself where, um, she is also imagining how she can be more terrible and narcissistic and get more attention in some of these sequences. But rather than cutting away to let us know that it's not real, Mm. there are moments where they cut away and they show perhaps what actually happened instead. And Mm. we're left in in an in-between state of not knowing which is which. And I don't know that there's an overt choice about the director saying this is what's real this is what's not real so much as the director wanting to say like it's in between right these moments of narcissism and these moments Mm of um acting like a friend you know are complex Mm -hmm. in their dynamics and whether or not they happened in the order that you interpret them you still get the same spirit of the character and the character's thoughts Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you actually just helped jog my memory because on on top of her narcissism she's also just a liar like a Mm -hmm. compulsive liar and 
when she's she goes around telling all of her friends and acquaintances that she like saved the woman who was bitten by the dog and that no one else stepped in to help which was not true according to like what looks like a a flashback flashback to reality quote unquote where someone steps up to like assist in this emergency situation and she signa says no stay back clearly wanting the sole role of hero in that situation Mm -hmm. so you're right yeah sometimes you're you're seeing fantasy but sometimes you're seeing the 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 truth yeah and it's the right normally like a director will give you insight into like this this first thing is the fantasy the second thing is the reality Mm. and this director seems to be playing with the placement of Mm. like the fantasy starts and stops and then you get a cutaway to what really happened and then you get to see what really happened and then you get a cutaway to a fantasy and so we're playing with two different vernaculars and as that happens you you almost don't even realize that you're just buying it because of the way it's structured Mm, yeah yeah I, i think it's quite clever in that way yeah that's the reason why i think it remained engrossing despite the fact that i vehemently hated our main character yeah and it gives it a nice pace too this is kind of a snappy movie it's not long i want to say it's under i want to say it's under yeah it's under two hours for sure i can't remember the exact runtime yeah i honestly think uh, it's like 97 minutes or something yeah i think it really moves yeah um uh with yeah with with very little downtime um and and uh you know I, i i think i saw some reactions describe this you know as satire and some people kind of speak about it as social media satire which kind of just struck me as like as kind of kind of wrong because we don't we see her like taking photos of herself and trying Mm -hmm. to get some publicity in the media um and you see her on her phone but i actually appreciated that this movie really didn't get into how this would very likely kind of go viral on social media. I think this could have been a much more social media centric movie about, um, uh, vic- about victims, uh-huh. right? And how those, and how, um, yeah, and how that's just bait for, for social media in a way. You don't really get that. Like, it's really kind of just focused on her, um, real life, not her digital life. Yeah, I, um, I concur completely. Like, it's, I, I would say that whoever said that is wrong, factually. Yeah. Like, it's not at all a social media film. We're not seeing text pop up on the screen. Not We're not all. seeing apps being used. In fact, I would argue that it's a legacy media film. It's mm. about newspapers and yeah. books and modeling gigs for, yeah. for H&M and regardless. And, like, mm. it's, it's very much focused on institutional validation of this character rather than the social media validation of this character and like real eyes being on her in person rather than virtual eyes um yeah so i yeah that that strikes me as uh conclusively incorrect a little a little off the mark yeah you mentioned regardless which is so funny regardless is the clothing company that she progressive clothing company and um progressive um bedding company yes they do clothes and bedding and this is the company she does some some modeling for um such a funny scene when she's actually at the shoot because at that point she's losing her hair i think Mm -hmm. the the makeup is pretty is pretty funny um, yes and pretty pretty effective um before they even get there there's a moment that i actually it hits all the themes on the head And it's a little bit overboard, but I really enjoyed this moment where she's um, come in to meet the agent and sign a contract. And this agent runs a progressive agency for people with disabilities to be models. And the assistant that she's hired is blind. And there is a, it's just very striking because of the way that this film's composed. It's not trying to get too meta. But it does just within the confines of this room have a blind person who is actually disabled based on however you want to label it versus someone who got themselves sick waiting on someone Mm. who forced themselves to be sick and is an imposter. She should be the one helping the blind woman out, not the other way around. And the, the way that you just get there is... I, very rich and eventually she goes and has to vomit in the hall because she's sick and i think that it's vomiting blood 
not positive. And then the blind assistant walks in not knowing that and is trailing blood all around the room. And there's it's a it's just a fantastic visual and thematic uh, coming together in my opinion. Yeah, it's it's body humor, which like we just don't get very often, at least this successfully. It's mm-hmm. such a funny scene. It's it's such a sad scene. I feel like it's like one of the saddest scenes in the movie where like yeah, not only should Cena be helping the blind person, but like the the agency director or whatever is clearly kind of like patting herself on the back for having hired this blind woman. Yes. But she's putting her in a position where she can't she cannot be successful in this situation. Um and it's like just used used the phrase cringe comedy earlier. That's extremely cringe. Yes. Um building on this, I think it all kind of comes together. So there's there's this able-bodied, healthy woman who's running this agency and patting herself on the back, right? And eventually we get to that regardless shoot. And nobody really wants to help or be around any of these disabled people. And eventually when she falls down and begins bleeding from the head, another man falls down who is able-bodied. And like everyone rushes to help him and take him away and is very fussy about him. But with her, they're just, like, leaving her there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an incredible image. It is. And it kind of ties back to, like, a, a question that the boyfriend asks in the hospital, which is, you're sure this isn't contagious, right? Just clearly people are, um, you know, uh, willing to announce their progressivism until it comes time to actually, like, do something. And then they they panic about the contagiousness of it or something yeah there's the moment where you have to make the choice yeah are you going to be present or are you going to um you know try to protect your health if you will yeah yeah or or, or protect your uh protect your name like the the agency director starts shouting like she told me she was healthy she claimed she was healthy uh-huh um, and and we don't have any liability yeah yeah exactly w- which she gets her to sign um how do you read the end of the film uh, so, yeah, at the end of the movie, we have the boyfriend in jail for um, theft. His his style of art is like a found object art thing where he uh, steals chairs, steals furniture, and then puts them in his shows. So he's in jail. Signa is um, rather defeated, but going to a, like, holistic medicine group um, where she is now... Um, Still looking quite unwell, but claiming some new symptoms that are a bit more beneath the surface, like brain fog, maybe like anxiety or depression. I can't remember what the words she uses are. Stage uh, one, um, recovery, something mm-hmm. or other, uh, vomiting blood. Yeah. I read it as quite cynical, at the least, um, in terms of its hope for transformation for this person yeah it really no transformation it's just uh, the only transformation is that she seems to have found a way to continue to stay alive mm-hmm. while remaining disfigured for attention yeah and there's a moment where she finally does tell her friend who had published uh, a article about her sickness that she had gotten herself sick on purpose mm-hmm. and the the way that that's taken um by the friend and the way that she just continues to try to um now use the truth as a reason to gain attention just underlines the entire film like it just continues on the same trajectory delivering the goods over and over and over of this narcissistic crazy person (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah the word privilege didn't really come to mind until like just now but i do think it's kind of a comment on like the privilege of being healthy and how like twisted it is to wish you were sick for the sake of attention Mm -hmm. it's just such a like such a grossly privileged um idea yes and it also says something about the society itself if you cannot seem to find any attention even from your loved one without having something wrong with you right because there that is like something about culture and even about smaller families or bigger families too where like you only pay attention to the ones that Mm. actually have a problem Mm -hmm. and so you start manifesting problems just to get the attention um so there's very rich um i'm very glad to have watched it yeah i want to say this did like the festival circuit 
last year, but mm-hmm. only came out uh, officially in the U.S. like like this year, a couple months ago. Yeah. Um, which I feel like has seen. I, I've seen some positive takes on it, but I feel like it's kind of kind of flown under the radar after initial actual distribution um have, have you heard or seen people talking about this one i know that it was a little bit popular back in march it mm. may have played um some texas film festivals or something between december and march but i i had expected now that it's on showtime to get a little bit more mm. buzz but i honestly haven't seen it trending yeah yeah well it sounds like a recommendation from us Yes, definitely. Um, well, that is our podcast chiming in to let us know that it is the end of this uh, five-year anniversary episode. Closing thoughts? See you in another five years, or hopefully sooner than that. Maybe sooner than that. All right, that sounds good. Run! Go! Get to the chopper! We have to go. I'm coming with you. That was brilliant. And that's another one in the can.